Tonight we're going to be going forward in 1 Kings chapter 4. We looked at chapters 4 and 5 verse by verse, if you have a Bible, on Tuesday night. And tonight we come back to it topically chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we pick up where Solomon has asked from the Lord wisdom. That was our topical study last Saturday. What would you ask of me? And he asked for wisdom, and the Lord gave him wisdom. And now we're still in that early part of Solomon where his reign where he's building the kingdom and expanding the kingdom that he received from the Lord, from his father David. He's now the third king of Israel, the son of the great king David, and the kingdom is going to expand. And as I mentioned, he'll be building the temple in the next couple of chapters, looking up ahead. Then it gets a little choppy. It's not all good with Solomon, but you know what? We'll get to the bad stuff when we get to it, and we'll stick to the good stuff when we're in it. And tonight, it's, it's good stuff. And above all else, when we come to Solomon, remember that when he was born, he was beloved of the Lord. And God had a special plan for his life. And then when he, rec- he already had wisdom before he asked for wisdom of the Lord in the dream. Because David even references wisdom twice before he even asked for it in the dream. And so he asked for wisdom and his administration, his skills, his words, they're, they're timeless. There's no one like him. It's about 1000 BC. So about 3000 years ago was the reign of Solomon and it changed the world. And of course, the book of Proverbs that he wrote is without a doubt the most insightful book on practical living that pleases God. And of course, he also wrote Song of Solomon in his youth and Ecclesiastes in his later years. So Solomon is just this amazing person. And tonight we get to the establishment of his kingdom. So in chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, So King Solomon was king over all Israel. Now, Jesus, of course, is the king of kings. But on the cross, he's the king of the Jews, right? In three different languages. It says he's the king of the Jews. And Solomon's wisdom is the greatest wisdom of any human being that ever lived. And it's referenced by Jesus, and people compare it to Jesus. But, of course, Jesus is God. He's the son of God. So his wisdom is superior. And even Jesus said one greater than Solomon is here now. And tonight when we look at things about Solomon being the king... We'll see his wisdom. Tonight we're really looking at practical applications, lessons of wisdom from King Solomon because chapter 4 is just loaded with practical wisdom life lessons from King Solomon that we're going to look at. And we're going to also look at how Jesus actually took these things to a higher level and how they really even apply to our life in seeking to serve the Lord and live for Jesus in our timeline, September 10th, 2022. So tonight's a very practical study. It's almost like being in the book of Proverbs because this is the historical record of the man led by the Spirit of God to write the book of Proverbs. So when we look at the beginning of his reign and the details of his administration, remember, he's over a landmass the size of Southern California. He's controlling billions of dollars of wealth. As I've mentioned, it's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. He's a monarch, and he's over it all. So he has great responsibility and Unlike all other kings and queens of human history, Israel's in a covenant with God at this time, and there are about 40 kings between the northern and southern kingdoms over about a 400-year period. But obviously, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, there's a few that really stand out, and he, of course, stands out profoundly, Solomon. So Solomon was king over all Israel. So he's in control. He has all this power, all this authority. Other passages of Scripture tell us he was the richest man the smartest man, the most powerful man. He was that guy on planet Earth. And as we look at his reign and his administration, we read in verse 2 that these were his officials 
Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Eloreth, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, the recorder, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiadiah, over the army, Zadok, and Abathar, the priest, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers, Zabad, the son of Nathan, a priest, and the king's friend, Ahashar, over the household, and Adoram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. So we begin with Solomon's people. Solomon's people. These are his people. When a president comes to power in the United States, he puts together his cabinet, right? And you have the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and all that kind of stuff. And these are his key people. In fact, we're told one of them is the king's friend. He chose his people. We're told in the Bible by Solomon and other places to choose our friends very wisely. Solomon's dad, David, in Psalm 1, told us that not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly and the path of the scornful and the wicked. We're told by the Holy Spirit through Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle that, good, that bad company corrupts good morals. And those of you that have raised children, you know you try and teach them early on to choose their friends wisely. And as I've said recently, it can be said that we are generally considered the sum total of the five people we hang out the most with. For as like attracts like, so we are. Yet, the way the Lord works in someone's life that they're growing in their faith in Jesus, they're going to be people that have influenced them above them. They're going to be people that are beside them that they've labored with and they share the journey with that are those people closest to them. And then ultimately there's going to be people that we're going to be mentoring and discipling and pouring into to raise up. So really at any given time, there are people that have come before us and influenced us. There are people that are sharing the journey and serving with us. And there are people ultimately that we want to be reaching out to, to pour into. This is the way it should be. So if we say with the sum total of the five people we hang out the most with, then we might think tonight, beginning on this, who are the five people above you that have influenced you the most? Now, these people could be living people. They could be people with the Lord. Maybe it's your parents and they're with the Lord. My mom, I always say that my mom, Elizabeth Elliot, the famous Christian woman who's been with the Lord for quite a few years now, her books have had a profound influence on me. And then my mom and my wife, but not in that order. Jennifer's had the greatest influence on me. My mom, number two, and probably Elizabeth Elliot, number three, as far as women that have impacted my life. Now, in the current world of women, I, of course, have tremendous respect for Susan Branch. She's like a big sister to me and other women in this church that I look up to. I have tremendous respect for Kathy Jensen and what she's done with her life and as a wife to her husband, as a deacon's wife. So there are, like, there are women that have influenced me and there are men that have influenced me. And we look up and I say, okay, well, Brian, Bro- Pastor Chuck, for sure. Brian Broderson, indirectly, John Corson in a lot of ways, especially early on when I was in the ministry. John Wooden, the great coach from UCLA, I've never met him, but his books have profoundly influenced me. Who, who, who influences us determines very much who we are, like who's born into us. And so I'm very grateful that when I first gave my life to the Lord, Brian Broderson made a lot of time for me. 
that first year. Like, he made a lot of time to go have breakfast with me after surfing or take me somewhere and let me ask him all these questions I had. It was profound influence on my life. And Pastor Chuck was always available to me as well. So there's people that have had, you know, great influence that I would look up to and that even Greg Morris, our lawyer, who 22 years ago, I don't know how God even brought him in my life, but we did our nonprofit for this ministry 22 years ago, the same time Scott and I were singing Open the Eyes of My Heart at Fallbrook High School at a Christian club. God brought me a lawyer that helped us put everything in place that we can do all that we do, releasing literally hundreds of thousands in the mission field at this point yearly because of the legal foundations we have to be able to do stuff. If you feel good about those people that are over you, that's a good thing. If you don't, like say, for example, your favorite book is the Communist Manifesto or the writings of Karl Marx, you're probably being influenced by the wrong people. Or if Charles Darwin's your hero, which obviously most of you is not, you know, you're being influenced by the wrong people. Books have consequences. That's why the marketplace of thought, books are important so you can compare books. But of course, intolerant societies burn books that are contrary to their agenda and their things. That's why a free society is so important. So you can compare thoughts. So when Paul the Apostle is on Mars Hill, he's giving out truth compared to falsehood. So the people that influence us above us, hopefully they're, they're, they're influencing us with truth and not manipulating us with family relations or with skewed agendas seeking to take advantage of us. So the people above us. Now the people beside us, we tend to choose beside us. We tend to choose beside us who our friends are. In 1987, I remember that when I gave my life to Christ and I became very serious about serving the Lord Jesus Christ, my friends just all kind of dissipated, my friends of the world. And God brought me some new friends. They are critical friends at a critical time. Even to this day, when you see my wedding photos, you go, who is Glenn Tilly and Jeff Bucknam? Because they don't really hang out with me anymore, although Glenn Tilly's daughter is one of the best women longboarders in the world, longboarders in the world. Were there the guys when all my friends left that they were there and they were seeking to serve Jesus in 87 and I was seeking to serve Jesus in 87. So we hung out together and as iron sharpens iron, we sharpened each other at a critical time in my life. Those guys had profound influence on my life the same time Brian Broderson did and Gilder Toyhill. And those were the right kind of friends to have and the right people to associate with. But then as I was in ministry, it was entrusted to me to raise up people who had served with me. So I would pick a ministry team with the drug and alcohol recovery ministry in Vista in 89 and 90. I'd start a church in Virginia Beach and pick people to be assistant pastors and deacons. And sometimes it went really well and sometimes it went really, really bad. Really bad. In fact, there's that story I don't tell too often, but in 1990, Pastor Chuck called me. I'd never had Pastor Chuck Smith call me. And he called me when I was in my office in Vista. And the secretary said, Pastor Chuck's on the phone. I'm like, Pastor Chuck? You know, so I pick up the phone. Oh, Chuck, he's like, oh, Joey, you know, and he says, hey, there's a fellow in Virginia Beach, wants to start a church. He's a nice guy. He's older than you. He's a banker, probably can help you with money. You should get him involved in the church. Well, Pastor Chuck calls and gives the guy the endorsement. That's all you need, right? That's all you need on your resume. Well, we put him in charge of the money and had a bad ending. And it took seven years to clear up the mess he made for us, the IRS, and those who came after him. Plus, he decided he tried to destroy the church before he left, too. Pastor Gaylord told me, whoever signs a check thinks they're in charge, so make sure you always sign the checks. But I had that guy sign in the checks within three months because he's the banker that Chuck recommended. It was just a disaster. But 
in November of 91, six months after we started the church and after it went to a third of the size it was after all this happened, the Lord taught me a valuable lesson. This is what the Lord said. Next time you appoint guys to be a pastor, make sure you fast and pray and seek me, not just Pastor Chuck. So that's a pretty good lesson in your fourth year of ministry, isn't it? Chuck is great. Jesus is better. Right? Chuck makes mistakes. Joy makes mistakes. Jesus is never wrong. And if you go back to it, in the book of Acts, when the early church was going forward, when they're sitting there serving the Lord in Antioch, they're like, just waiting on the Lord, serving the Lord. And then the Lord says, set aside for me Saul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to. And the Holy Spirit picked who was to be part of that first ministry team. The Holy Spirit picked the ministry team. And even before that, in Jerusalem, when they needed men just to serve tables, they gave a qualification and delegated it to people, and they came forth and picked those people, brought forth seven, including Stephen and Philip, and they, the, the, the apostles prayed and confirmed it. So again, Solomon had his people, and we have our people. We have people above us. We have people beside us. And then ultimately, we have people that God wants to use us because the kingdom of God is expanding. And if we're not reaching the next generation, if we're not pointing to someone else, how is the kingdom of God expanding through us? If we're just taken in and not releasing, we're the Dead Sea, and it comes into us and it just dies. But if we're taking in and it's flowing out of us, we're the Sea of Galilee, and there's life. And so ultimately, all that we're learning in life and all that God's doing in our life is to to be used to equip the next generation. And that's what Titus has in mind when he says the older women minister to younger women and the older men to younger men. And so we equip and we use in church, we call it discipleship because that's what Jesus called it. The world calls it mentoring, but really for the kingdom of God, it truly is discipleship in the idea that you're pouring into somebody. And discipleship isn't so much like, hey, let's do discipleship. In Virginia Beach, we once did a discipleship class. Yeah, I had the book and everything. How to be a disciple. It was like 10 chapters. This is how you're a disciple. I'm like, that didn't really quite work right. You know, like it looked good in the beginning. It seemed like a good idea, but that's not really discipleship. Discipleship is hanging out. Discipleship is doing ministry together. It's the things that like Scott Cunningham and I have shared together as peers in ministry for over 20 years. Discipleship is hanging out with millennials at Vacancy Coffee and just encourage them in the call that God has in their life and what God wants to do. Discipleship is doing Brandon Phillips' ministry, vert skate and surf and, and just pouring into people and they come down to a heaney and you're cooking hot dogs and you start talking, you have conversations about God and you're pouring in their life. That's discipleship. Jesus picked his team. And when he picked his team, he picked his team so they would pick future teams and each subsequent team would pick future teams. Because... He went on the mountain with his father, and he prayed all night. And then he came down, and he chose the 12, including Judas, right? So he was with the father. He always did those things that pleased the father. There's no wrong choices with Jesus. And he chose the 12. Then he chose 70 as well, but he focused on three, Peter, John, and James. He had his three, his 12, his 70, kind of like a bullseye, three, 12, 70, and the multitudes, and individuals in the multitudes. But when he went to heaven, he gave them the great commission, And the Great Commission is to go make disciples of all nations. So the whole book of Acts is those who received the baton, who were mentored, or really we say discipled by Jesus Christ, to then go and make disciples. And that's what the book of Acts is. 
And throughout the book of Acts, there, there's the apostles, there's, there's Matthias replacing Judas, there's the deacons or precursors to the deacons. Then they go here and the church is planted. Then they go there and there's leaders and there's this and that. And, and there's new ministry teams. And, and there's a ministry team with Paul the first time he goes out. And then there's a ministry team the second time he goes out. And then God's adding to the team during the, during the journey of the second journey with Timothy and others. Life lessons of wisdom from Solomon tells us it's really important that we're receiving from people and surround ourselves with people above us who have come before us and can pour into us and build us up for our journey. Life lessons from Solomon tells us that we want to surround ourselves with people that as iron sharpens iron, that they're building up our most holy faith and we're building their faith up. And it doesn't mean that we don't like other people, we can't respect other people, encourage other people. It just means they're not necessarily meant to be walking together with us. Because as Amos the prophet said, can two walk together if they're not in agreement? So it's really important as we're serving the Lord, as we're going forward in things, that we be yoked properly, that we're equally yoked. The idea of two cows plowing the field and they're going the same direction is a team, like how a marriage should be, how a servant in ministry should be, how business should be in business partnerships, that we're yoked together and there's unity. And of course, in the church, we're told, endeavor to maintain the unity. It's already there. It just needs human beings to humble themselves to make sure they stay in it when they've gotten apart from it. Christ is never divided. You know that? In our relationships with one another in Jesus' name, he's never divided. So whenever there's division in the marriage, whenever there's division in a family, whenever there's division in church leadership of any level or division between believers, it is between human beings and their flaws, not Christ. Because we're told to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So whatever divisions we have over what color the carpet should be in the sanctuary, or what font should be used for the words when they're back up and running next week, those are divisions over decisions, and we learn to respect each other and those decisions and division over decisions. But Christ is not divided. So as Solomon built his team with wisdom, he surrounded himself with very capable competent people to do what needed to be done. And there's diversity in their roles and what they did. You got a commander of the army. You got people that keep records. You got people that organize finances. And he picked 12 people who one month of a year had to perform equally a skill and a requirement across the board without variation. The same thing was required of all 12 leaders that would provide the provision for the king's palace and really the revenue of the country, there was equality and expectation, and, but they had to be competent and get the job done. So in picking the team, so now we're thinking about people maybe underneath us as you're a boss, a leader, whatever you have employees, you, you have to pick people that are capable and competent. And you've got to give them a chance to get going too. So Solomon chose the right people he equipped the right people. He enabled them. And then he, he was, I'm sure, available to them. One thing I loved about being at Calvary Costa Mesa is Pastor Chet, his door was always open to staff. Now, a lot of the pastors, there were about 30 of them on staff when I was there in 2000. Scott was there at the same time, and he'll testify who was leading worship tonight. Most pastors were too intimidated to just go in Pastor Chuck's office because his time was valuable. So you need to go in there like, here's my question or here's my situation. And, it, you know, it's like you're not going to talk about the surf at 56th Street that day, even though he used to surf. Like you're going in there 
but he was always available. He was always available. And the reason I think I did so well under Pastor Chuck and Brian Brotherson is they weren't micromanagers. There was, there was a freedom, a lot of freedom. You're the offensive coordinator. You're running the offense. You, put, you call the plays. You want to run the ball, run the ball. You want to pass, you pass. Unless you turn the ball over 10 times, then we're going to talk about, like, the offense that you're running, right? But I love that. But he, he enabled us at Worship Generation. He gave us the sanctuary. A Thursday night, then Monday night after Greg Glory. And he, and he gave us K-Wave, and he gave us all these things. He said, bring in this young guy, Jeremy Camp. Bring in that 16-year-old Phil Wickham. Bring in Scott Cunningham. Bring in Bobby Brown, the other teenager. Bring him in. Joe Henschel, when he was 17, farewell down. Bring him in. We'll put him on the radio. That's what he did 30 years before that with Greg Glory when he was a teenager, right? Like, that's, so we, we, we identify people, and we pour into people, and they haven't arrived when they're entrusted to us. We're helping them to get there. Like, that's what we do. Like, look how Jesus was with the apostles. He was so patient and gracious. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to entrust younger people to us. He wants to entrust peer group to us that we can sharpen iron. He wants us to be able to receive from those that are over us and have gone before us. People, in God's universe, everything's relational. It's vertical with God and horizontal with human beings. And the church of Jesus Christ, it's not about knowledge that puffs up. It's about love that builds up. And love is reflected in inner relationships with other people. And it's having the right people. That God's going to bring his people. And you identify those people. Solomon, in his wisdom, surely identified that some of these people were very capable and saw right away what they could do. And he enabled them and he equipped them. You know, I asked God for worship leaders in 2000. And he gave me Jeremy Camp, Phil Wickham, Charlo Broderson, Scott Cunningham, Bobby Brown, and Joe Henschel. That's pretty much answered prayer right there. I think we can all testify of that. I still ask for great worship leaders. But just, you know what I'm saying? Like, you ask and he'll bring the people. You, he'll bring the people. That's what he does. Paul chose Silas before the second missionary trip, but Timothy was waiting for him in modern Turkey. He had Silas, but God's like, hey, I can add to your team. This guy right here, he's going to be awesome. His name is Timothy. So it's always about people. and we, It's good to be reminded of that tonight. Solomon surrounds himself with really quality, capable people, and they thrived under him. And even after he was in eternity, they gave good counsel to his son, Rehoboam. And if Rehoboam had just heeded their counsel, it would have gone well for Rehoboam. So bad for Rehoboam, but good for the counselors. They gave good counsel. So we want to walk in good counsel. We want to receive good counsel. We want to build up those around us, speaking encouragement, edification, blessings, the good things of the Lord. And then we want to pour into the next generation. And that's why I think it's just so crucial that we see the people coming behind us. And whether it's our own children or our grandchildren, we need to always see the younger people, not millennials anymore. They're already all adults, but Z. And then we just have to see that God has a call in their life. That there's always a future and a hope with the Lord. And that his thoughts are good thoughts for a future and a hope. And the moment we don't see that, you know what happens is we might as well go to an elephant graveyard and just die because we've lost our vision for the next generation and the future. And I'm not going to be judge and jury of God's future on planet Earth, and nor would you want to be. Amen?
What did Jesus say to the apostles when they said, oh, is this the time? It's the end of this age. Your father's going to set it up. He goes, that's for me to worry about. As for you, you go make disciples. You go be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's our stewardship. The end of the world, the coming kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, that's his. So in the meantime, we need to let the right people influence us. We need to bring along the right people, and we need to equip the next generation that they'll be the right people to advance the kingdom from glory to glory. So Solomon and his people, great wisdom there, to be spiritually minded and just like Jesus, man, give people room to make mistakes, point to them, help them, and just keep going forward toward the kingdom, equipping, delegating, discipling. Now, the second thing we see is Solomon's plans. In verse 9, excuse me, 7, it says he had these 12 governors who provided food for the king and his household. Okay. Each one made provision for one month of the year. Solomon is thinking outside the box here. Until this time, almost everything that happens in Israel happens along territorial lines of the 12 tribes. And even back when God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, you had a leader for each tribe. So you had this leader of the tribe. But remember, when the spies were sent out, Moses sent out the 12 spies, and they represented their tribes. And 10 of those spies gave a bad report, and everyone wandered in the wilderness for 38 years because of the bad report they gave that was believed. Only Joshua and Caleb, representing their tribes, brought back a good report. They marched with the banners of their tribes, right? The, the tabernacles in the center, three tribes in the north, east, south, west. They're surrounded. The banners went up. Each tribe had a banner, and they'd tear down camp, and there they go, and off they go. Their identity was in their tribes, and leadership was selected based upon tribe. So even if you had the two best leaders that you could possibly have in all Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, you only chose one. And even if the leader for Naphtali was a knucklehead, you still chose him because that's the best Naphtali has to have. But we find inefficiency and fruitfulness that that doesn't really work. Selecting people for their abilities to execute a plan and get it done is what really works in the real world. And you, great leadership is putting the right people in the right place for the right task. Every year when a high school football team forms at Calvary Chapel High School and every other high school, you get about 30, 40 boys together, and you figure out who your quarterbacks are, one, two, and three, maybe four, who your running backs are. They're also linebackers usually playing defense. You, you just kind of figure it out, who your starters are. You just... You figure it out. And you try and put the athletes, the right athletes, in the right spot. And good coaching is always, whether it's basketball or any other sport, girls volleyball, put your right, put the right pieces in the right place. So we need capable people to execute a good plan. And we need to be able to think outside the box with the plan. And with Solomon, he had 12 governors who could execute the plan, but they're not based upon the tribe. They're based upon their abilities their capabilities to do what needs to be done. So Solomon's plans are super smart, and they're not limited to what's always been. See, as you go down in this chapter, it says, Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, verse 21, and to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. He had a plan for how, many, how much food was distributed every day in his palace, verse 22, 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, oxen, 20 oxen, all this stuff. 
He had dominion. There's peace everywhere. And it says from Dan to Bathsheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon was super prosperous. And under Solomon, the king of Israel went as far as it ever went under any king. And the boundaries that we read in detail in chapter 4 are the closest thing to the boundaries God promised Israel if they obeyed him when they went into the promised land 400 years before. In other words, if you could fill the jar to the fullest of God's promise for the nation of Israel, or we might say if you could expand the boundaries as far as they go, what God promised in each direction, no one came nearly this close. Remember when we finished the book of Joshua? There was unfinished business. Oh, and the tribe of Joseph's like, oh man, give us the forest. And, and Joshua's like, go get it yourself. Oh, they have chariots and this and that. And he's like, well, go take them down. It's not entitlement here. Go get it. Get your hustle on and go get it is what Joshua said. Well, Solomon did get his hustle on and he did go get it. The kingdom under Solomon expanded in his time farther than any other time. Like the prayer of Jabez, oh, that you might enlarge my borders. That's exactly what happened with Solomon. He had the stalls, he had the chariots, he had the standing army, he had the productivity of agriculture, and he had the 12 governors who once a year for one month brought everything needed to do. He was brilliant, and he had a plan. And it reminds us, to have a plan is not a bad thing. We often think that having a plan is like manufacturing something in the flesh, and that, oh, you know, let's just kind of go wherever the Spirit leads us. That's not really the way it works. A man plans his ways, a woman plans her ways, but the Lord directs their steps. And we're told, you shouldn't say, we're going to do this and that and make a bunch of money, book of James. We should say, well, let's do this, and if the Lord wills. And we see from the book of Acts, even Paul, Paul the apostle, had plans. Paul was very intentional and deliberate with plans, and he went for it. So when you see the journeys of Paul, each journey gets a bigger circle and is a longer journey. So he has a vision. And by the way, in Romans 15, when he says that this part of his life, the first three journeys is done, he says, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to Rome, which is now expanding his circle for his fourth journey. And then I'm going to go to Spain. See, Paul, like us, had a bigger vision. He didn't dumb down God. He wasn't retracting the kingdom to a smaller plan. He was expanding the kingdom. Think about this. Paul the Apostle in Romans 15, when he said, I no longer have a place in these parts, was not moving toward retirement or retraction. He was moving toward a greater expansion. He had the vision of a bigger plan. He saw the gospel going farther than it had ever gone before. And he's going to Rome, and he's going to Spain, and he never probably made it to Spain. We don't know. But at least he had a vision for where the kingdom would go farther than he'd ever seen in his lifetime. And that's what I'm talking about. He had a plan. Jesus had a plan. Jesus was very deliberate with what he did. Remember in the Gospel of Mark? Peter goes, oh, we need to do this. Everyone's waiting for him. He goes, no, no, no. We're going to do this, and then that, and then this. And for this reason, I came. See, God always has a plan. He has a plan with this church in 2022 on planet Earth, in the United States of America, and in this local church, right? He's got a plan, and we're trying to seek that plan. We're trying to be in the flow of that plan as best we can discern it. We have plans, but in the end, we want the Lord to confirm those plans or change those plans. Jesus throughout his three years of ministry, was moving on the Jewish calendar. He very deliberately went to Jerusalem at certain times. 
he deliberately went to the Gentiles when he went to Lebanon. And he absolutely had a plan when he went to Samaria through the mountains instead of going to the valley through Jericho and coming up the back way. Jesus didn't do things randomly. There was a plan. And even when he said the first miracle in John 2, fill the water pots, that's part of the plan. That's us. Fill the water pots. That's the plan. Then comes the Holy Spirit and the supernatural to confirm that work and that plan. And thus you get the water to wine. We don't ever want to come up short on our water pots because we're sloppy, lazy, or lacking diligence or intention to do what God's called us to do, especially since most of us, well, some of us are over 40, 50, maybe 60. There's no time to be messing around with half full of water pots. Fill the water pots. The diligent make things happen. That's what they do. They're intentional, they're absolute, and they're on it. For me personally, pretty much almost at least six nights out of seven before I go to bed, the last thing I'm doing is on my phone planning the next day. Not so micro, but general. Here's, you know, it's always six to 10 in the morning, then 10 to two, two to six, six to 10. That's kind of my window. That's how I'm rolling. These, and the most important thing is an MIT. This MIT, that's for sure going to happen between 10 and 2. i got to finish those edits and get those to Alex. We've got to get those on the podcast and designate the ones that are for K-Wave and back them up on the backup drive. That's what we're doing. i got to get the study ready. I want to keep praying about the missions. Because in asking for more money lately for missions, the Lord's like, which ones? I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, well, go figure it out. I told you I've asked for money three times from Pastor Chuck. Lots of money, actually. And all three times, he said, nope. But I look back at all three of those times, I didn't have the details he expected from me to fund those plans. They're like, yeah, bro, we're going to do a surf movie called Lost and Found. You're a surfer, Chuck, right? Can I have 80 grand? Uh, no. Oh, happy feelings gone. I thought that Aloha shirt you're wearing meant like, you know, there wasn't a plan. Pastor Chuck, you know, who all the things he ever did, you don't, you don't buy Murrieta without a plan. You don't buy Twin Peaks without a plan. You got to have a plan. Chuck was intentional. Solomon's temple was a plan. It was very intentional. We'll see it on Tuesday night. It's important that we have a plan. Every day is such a precious gift that we don't want to just stumble into them and stumble through them. We want to be deliberate and intentional. Like Jesus But I will say this with your plan, in the midst of being intentional and deliberate with a plan, because Solomon had a great plan. Hey, I'm thinking outside the box. I'm going to get 12 people to know what they're doing. I don't care what tribe they're from. They just need to be capable management. And I'm going to require the same thing from two of them married his daughters. Yeah, they're family, but it's not nepotism. See, it's not nepotism. Two of those 12 governors married Solomon's daughters, but they were still held to the same accountability of the task to be done as the other 10. That's not nepotism. That's just picking the right son-in-laws for your daughters or accepting the right son-in-laws for your daughters. But Jesus and his plans, and as he taught about us having plans, he always showed flexibility. He always had time to tell Peter, hey, go catch a fish and you'll see the temple coin in the mouth of the fish you catch. He told the parable, the good Samaritan, busy, busy, busy. No, 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 no. But the one who went out of their way 
they were coming along. They had work. They had things to do that day too, just like all of us on, you know, so Monday the, the the 12th. You know, they all had things to do. But this guy, he made, he had a plan. But he he recognized the ministry and went with the flow and adjusted the plan because God now has a new plan, and that's one of the things that the mark of maturity in the Lord teaches us that we have a plan, but we recognize this is the Lord. And you can be in a Joey Brand fifth gear, which is usually the gear I'm in, but you gotta be able to downshift. You gotta be like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is the Lord right here. This is a divine appointment right here. This is God's doing something right here. And often those things that we think are inconveniences or hassles, those are the things that God is bringing in our life that very moment because he wants to use us in that moment. And when we recognize a chance to serve somebody, to push their car that's stalled, or these things that happen like that, we have a plan and we're going somewhere for sure. But when you realize people are bigger than the plan and the Lord's over the plan, that's how Jesus was. But Jesus was intentional and he had a plan every day. I always do those things that please the Father. And he had a deliberate plan. Paul, a very deliberate plan on his calendar. Solomon, a very deliberate plan. We're going to think outside the box. We're going to do it this way. 12 capable people, 12 times a month. You bring it You bring it equally. You're good. You're well paid. The whole year is built around one month. 11 months to prepare for it. You just re- it's almost like department stores that plan for Christmas, right? The whole year from January, you're building toward November. You know, Thanksgiving, and how are you going to do the holiday season? That type of thinking is all moving this way. And then he, he expanded the boundaries. He's, he, David basically conquered all of his enemies for him, so he kind of inherited that, like the Philistines and these other people are subject. They're all afraid of him. They could, like, why pick a guy with the smartest fight with the smartest guy in the room? And has all the military and all these things, and his dad's David. Like, that's, let's just wait till his reign's over. It was a time of peace. In fact, it says that everyone was under their fig tree, and they're quite happy. It was, they're eating and drinking and rejoicing. Like, that's, that's a really good economic time for everybody. You had a good plan. Good plans. And I encourage us, let, seek the Lord for vision and have a plan. Have a, have a, have a three-year plan. Have a one-year plan. When I did the U.S. Olympic surf coaching, they made me do this whole project. For the, it, it took me a long time. And it was going from August of 2028 to have an American surfer winning gold medal on the podium in Los Angeles in 2028. And to reverse engineer that to 2017 or 2018 at the time, that what we're going to do the next 10 years, I'm like, well, you got this, and now you got the Pan Am Games, and... And no, we need more details. So like, okay, a training center. Like, but it, what, it, what it did is it forced me to critically think a 10-year plan. Because see, Americans tend to think about the U-turn on beach in Indianapolis going to McDonald's. It's a 10-minute plan to go to McDonald's. That's how we think in and out. But Russians and Chinese and Indian people, they're a long-term plan. They're playing the long game. We're playing two years till the midterm or the next presidential election. Putin, he's playing a 40-year plan. He's president forever. He's, he's a czar. And they're not reacting to what we do or don't do. And you see, I've learned like so often as an American and just me being me the way I am, I have a short-term plan. And the Lord's like, stretch it out. You need to start thinking longer, longer plan. Like, see, you know, quality things take time. So when I did all that for the U.S. Olympic Committee, what I concluded is, man, 
if I live 10 more years, is this what I'm going to do? Like, if I live, to, if I die in 2029, be like 68. So if I die in 2029, is this what I want to do? Because ultimately, this is going to replace worship generation as well, because it's just going to intensify. And then what I really thought was the ultimate biblical question, do I want to go for temporal gold or eternal gold? And of course, there's a Bible verse about it, right? First Corinthians. They run for a perishable crown, we for an imperishable crown. And the key defining moment for me to decide I'm not going to be the coach of U.S. Olympic surfing was doing the 10-year plan. Because I thought if i got 10 years left, it's got to be for the Lord and everything he has for worship generation, the body of Christ, missions, and the return of the king, not for some silly medal that's going to be gone 100 years after the person receives it. That's not what I, if I've got 10 years left in my life, and nothing against surf coaches and Olympic coaches, don't get me wrong, but for Joey Brand, my calling is pastor. And if I get to 69, I'm not moving toward the LA Olympics 2028. I'm moving toward the glory of the king in 2028. Now, if I felt I was called to be the coach, I would embrace that as unto the Lord. But that reverse engineering really, really, really made me think about long game and plans that are more than just the next three months. Where are we going? And, and just being more patient, playing a longer game. Just, just longer game. I want to play tic-tac-toe. And the Lord's like, you need to learn how to play chess. Like Bobby Fischer. For days. One game. So Solomon had new plans. He knew the metrics. Metrics are the numbers. Numbers never lie. Numbers talk and they're talking to you. When you look at your checkbook, hey, they're talking, aren't they? In, out. Numbers don't lie. I don't like math, but it's the most absolute science in the universe. Numbers don't lie. That's why it's called metrics. These are just the metrics. This purchase price, this return on investment, ROI, this works, it doesn't work. The metrics. But the creativity, right brain is metrics, left brain is creativity. The creativity is you thinking of outside the box like Solomon saying, like, who cares what tried their friend? If they get the job done, they get the job done. Hire them. If they've married my daughter, they married my daughter. That's the creativity. But see, here's the beauty for all of us tonight to think about the wisdom from Solomon. Because a spirit-filled woman a spiritual man is invited to have more wisdom than Solomon in the New Testament because the Bible tells us that we have the mind of Christ and the mind of the Spirit. And the Bible tells us if we lack wisdom to make what the plan is, to make the right decision or the right response, we are promised. Listen, body of Christ. We are promised the answer. Don't ask like a double-minded woman or a double-minded man, but we are promised that answer. So I'm telling you, as smart as people like Einstein and Mr. Tesla and these guys are, Bezo and all these people, you, a single mom, spirit-filled, are potentially way smarter and way wiser than any of these people that control billions of dollars that they'll leave behind. Do you understand me? So metrics is the numbers, right brain. Creativity is thinking outside the box for new ways to do things and, and, and re rethinking it. But ultimately, the Spirit of God comes over us and he gives us all the wisdom we need, all the insight we need. He knows everything from the past. He knows everything in the future. He knows his call in our life. He knows the hairs in our head. And so if we value people, hang out with the right people, and we, let, we, put, we, we seek him for a plan, we have a plan, we subject the plan to him. We let him guide the plan. 
It's going to be awesome. He's going to lead us. He's going to direct us. A woman plans her ways, but the Lord directs her steps. A man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So we have this balanced worship generation that we're reminded tonight with Solomon. It's the people with the Lord, and it's the plans from the Lord. And those two go together, and that's how, that's how it happens, that we let the Lord guide us and direct us. So we can never forget, ultimately, it's about people and that the Lord has a plan. And those two factors are going to always go together with Jesus and the Great Commission, with the example of leaders before us and the history of the church and the legacy of the church and for us in our lives. So we're reminded yet again tonight, people, Jesus came for people. And we have to always value people. And ultimately, God has a plan with our life on how he's going to reach people. So as long as we see people the way Jesus sees them, and we want to reach people and serve them and love them the way Jesus does, he's going to give us fresh plans and new ideas to advance his kingdom. And that is the history and the great commission of the Church of Jesus Christ. That is our future until the trumpet sounds.